Well, if you were with us last Sunday, you know that we were in Mark chapter 13, where Jesus talks about his second coming, his return to earth. And as to the timing of his return, Jesus said, concerning that hour, no man knows, not even the Son, but only the Father. I wonder if that verse came to mind for you this week in a head-scratching sort of way. Not even the Son. We talked about that last week, and I won't review much, but I said last week that this doesn't prove to us that Jesus isn't God or isn't all-knowing. It's owing to the fact that there is an order of authority within the triune God. We believe in one God in three persons, each co-equally God. But the Spirit is in subjection to the Son, and the Son is in subjection to the Father. And so Jesus came not to do his own will, but the will of his Father. He came not with his own words, but the words of his Father. And he said that the times and seasons were fixed according to the authority of his Father. In that sense, no man knows, not even the Son Rather than remove our confidence in Jesus, or the Bible, or the plan of God, Jesus' words about him not knowing the hour of his coming should comfort us. When his return seems like a mirage off in the distance, always far away and never comforting, it's comforting to know, never, never coming, and it's comforting to know that Jesus didn't know the day, or the hour. And when we, like petulant children, want to know how close we are, how many days are left, how much time is left, well, we're, we're sobered by the reality that Jesus didn't know. We can be comforted and sobered by the fact that Jesus didn't know his hour. But we can also be comforted in what Jesus knows. The timing of his return is very unique. It's not like there are a lot of things Jesus doesn't know. And we've seen in Mark, as we've studied this together in past months, that Jesus knows people's thoughts, people's feelings, people's faith. He knows even their plans and their motives. He knows the future. He predicts the future. We saw in recent days that he predicted the destruction of the temple, and that's exactly what happened just a few decades later. As early as chapter 2, Jesus was promising that eventually he'd be taken away from the disciples. And that's what we're getting close to as we move toward the end of Mark. We saw him explicitly foretell his coming death and resurrection in three major predictions, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. He was explicit and he was specific about what was to come. And today as we come to chapter 14, we should be further comforted to know that he knows. He doesn't just know the future, he's in control of it. He knows about the people plotting around him. He knows their plans. And more importantly, he knows his own plans. In chapter 14, we'll see his authority his sovereignty. We'll see that despite the circumstances around 
feeling chaotic once we understand what's going on in the story, it's all according to plan, according to Jesus. Jesus is in control. And even though his enemies are plotting his, his demise, Jesus is actually himself preparing to die. Let's read Mark 14, 1 through 11. We'll read on a little bit more in the chapter later in the sermon, but we'll start with this. Mark 14, verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray, to him, betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. In these verses, Mark gives us three scenes, each with a person or a group of people as a focal point. Of course, Jesus is the focal point in it all. He's the center of it all. The question is how each of these three, though, relate to him. Jewish leaders, an unnamed woman, and Judas Iscariot. How each of these three relate to Jesus. The question for us is how these three will help us with how we relate to Jesus or how we don't. First, Jewish leaders and their relentless scheming. Jewish leaders and their relentless scheming in verses 1 and 2. And what we see in verses 1 and 2 here in chapter 14, we've seen in Mark before. It was in chapter, th uh, chapter 3 when Jesus forgave a man of his sins. The Pharisees who heard it said he blasphemed. And they began to conspire against him to destroy him. To destroy him. You have several confrontations and encounters between Jesus and various Jewish leaders in the following chapters. Then in chapter 11, after Jesus condemned the temple and its hypocrisy, we read, the chief priests and scribes were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him. And then in chapter 12, verse 12, they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people, so they left him and went away. They're relentless. Now in chapter 14, their goal, his death, is as clear as ever. 
Their resolve is as steadfast as ever. And yet, like other times before, their plans are frustrated. Their hands are tied. They can't just arrest this Jesus. The crowds like him too much. Besides, it's bad timing. They say in verse 2, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Not during the feast. It was Passover. Well, it was two days before Passover, we're told. Two days before Passover in Jerusalem. That's easy to read that and just sort of go on. Passover, it's something in the Old Testament. Jerusalem, you know, I know where that is. Two days before, so what? Thanks for telling us where this is so we know what day of the week it is. But there's more to it than that. We've got to understand what this means and even what this scene looks like. Passover was one of three festivals or feasts in which faithful Jews traveled from wherever they lived into Jerusalem. The city swelled by a factor of four or five during these Jewish feasts and festivals. There'd be great excitement. But also, in these days, an element of unrest, tension, chaos. Now, remember, back in the Old Testament, what Passover is and was, Passover was that celebration of God freeing his people from Egyptian slavery. It's the book of Exodus, if you haven't read it before. And in that tenth plague that God sent to the Egyptians, where he would wipe out the firstborn male of every house, he also told his people that the angel of death would pass over their houses if they put the sacrificed blood of a lamb on their doorposts. The blood was a symbol of their faith. It was a symbol that sacrifice had been made. And when the angel of death passed through, he would pass over those homes. And that led to them being freed from that Egyptian slavery and out in the desert with God as their, as their commander-in-chief. Now, by Jesus' time, the celebration of Passover wouldn't be so much about an awareness of sin, the need for sacrifice, the possibility of God's wrath passing over judgment and passing over us because of his grace. Rather, in Jesus' time, Passover would have been celebrated in much more nationalistic terms. Much like their forefathers who were in that Egyptian tyranny and slavery. They saw themselves in similar ways. They saw themselves under pagan, Roman tyranny. Yes, in the promised land, but under pagan rule. Passover was a time to ask God and to ask each other and ask ourselves, when, Lord, when will you do it again? When will you do Exodus all over again? When will you free us from that great monster of tyranny and slavery and occupation called Rome? Not surprisingly, many Jewish revolts either started or swelled around Passover time. The Romans knew it. They had experience with it. Roman guards were on high alert. Pilate 
The Roman governor would even move his headquarters to Jerusalem around Passover just to keep an eye on things, just being ready to squash anything that might be a little alarming and yet could swell out of control if it wasn't squashed quickly. Now keep in mind, too, that at this time, anyone who likes Jesus at this point in the story of Mark's telling of it, anyone who likes Jesus probably thinks he's a Messiah, and the vast majority think he's a certain kind of Messiah. He is one who will lead his people in that kind of Passover, Exodus, freedom-gaining revolt against Rome and be successful for once. It's two days before Passover. You get it now? Tensions are high. These religious leaders would like to kill Jesus. But a lot of people think he's the Messiah and hope that he'll beat Rome. If they kill Jesus or even arrest him, you can imagine the uproar. And so if they're going to arrest Jesus, they have to figure out a way, as it says in verse 1, to arrest him by stealth. There's drama in the air, and yet the writing's on the wall. We know what's coming. The religious leaders think that Passover is a bad time to arrest and kill Jesus. It's actually the time in which they will arrest and kill Jesus. It's all according to plan for Jesus. The complex cultural and political and religious dynamics that are happening here in Jerusalem actually led to Jesus' trial, led to his crucifixion, and these things he's been predicting for days or weeks or months or even years. Verses 1 to 2 show us that religious Gestapo, rather perplexed and perhaps frustrated, but we know what's to come. We know that the timing is actually perfect that there's a perfect storm that needs to happen and it's starting to happen. We know not only what will happen the next day, his betrayal and arrest. We know not only what will happen two days from then, the cross where he'll pay for sins and be a ransom for many. We know not only what will happen on the third day after that, his resurrection, just as he promised. But we also know, for instance, what Peter preached in Acts chapter 2 about what it all meant and how it happened. Let's remind ourselves of this. Acts 2 verse 22, Peter says after the resurrection and ascension and now in the birth of the church, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. So both are true. There are two realms or two things going on for one single event. They crucified and killed him, and they are responsible for that wickedness. And yet, it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The worst sin in human history, the crucifixion of God's Son, was according to plan without the Father himself committing sin or putting sin into people's hearts. 
You see similar wording in a prayer two chapters later in Acts. A very telling prayer that the disciples pray after they're, after they're beaten. In Acts 4, they, they pray, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It was his plan. It's what happened. They did it. And they're responsible. It is no less wicked because God is sovereign in it. They have Psalm 2 in mind when they're praying this prayer in Acts 4. Would you turn back to Psalm 2 with me in your Bibles? Psalm 2 is a very important psalm to the New Testament. It's good for us to remind ourselves what's going on there. This is sort of getting way ahead of ourselves from Mark chapter 14, or maybe it's getting slightly behind ourselves because this is the Old Testament. But we should remember when we're in Mark 14, the stuff that's happening after, and occasionally the stuff that happened before and points ahead and gives us really interpretive keys to what's going on in the story that we're following along in Mark 14. So even though Mark 14 doesn't quote Psalm 2, even though it doesn't paraphrase Psalm 2, it has this in mind. This is in the background. Where David said, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed or Messiah or Christ. They say, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Even in the first two verses of Mark 14, that's the writing that's on the wall. That's what's coming. That's what we're starting to see. We see rulers plotting. They're taking counsel together. They are against the Lord's anointed. They're trying to cast off his cords, his authority, his strings on them and their, his right to them. They're trying to rid him of what he says and trying to rid him of his scepter. And yet it's all futile according to Psalm 2. And that's what we'll see in Mark. God laughs. He will set his son on his holy hill. He will have the nations as his inheritance. So be warned, Psalm 2 said hundreds of years before Jesus. Be warned, O kings, O rulers. Flee to the Son, 
Reckon with the sun. Take refuge in the sun. Kiss the sun. Anoint the sun. Adore the sun. Like a woman did in Mark 14. So let's turn back there. So first, we see the Jewish leaders in the relentless scheming. And now, secondly, we see a woman and her extravagant anointing. And what a contrast it is between those scheming, frustrated religious leaders and what's happening at a meal inside the house of Simon the leper. We don't know who Simon the leper is. This is the only mention of him in the New Testament. Most likely, he was a leper. That is, until he met Jesus. We're not told that. We can't conclude that for sure. But we can, we can guess it's most likely that this man was healed of his leprosy. And, and hence, this would be one of those miracles that Jesus did. There are probably thousands, maybe more, or at least hundreds more. Who knows where Jesus did it? And Scripture never records the story for us. But here we have a guy we never really get to know. Maybe in heaven we will. Simon the leper. It's in his house that they're having a meal. Mary and Martha are there as well. We know that from John's account of the same story. John tells the same story in John 12, if you want to check that out. Mary and Martha are there, and so is their brother Lazarus. And, and again, they're there for a meal. And it's then, in verse 3, that a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. It was costly. How costly was it? Well, verse 5 tells us it was worth 300 denarii. One denarii is the wage of one man's labor for a day. One day's wage. So 300 denarii would have been one year's worth of wages. They didn't work seven days a week. So, you know, every seventh day they take that off and you get really close to 300 days of work that way. And so we can think of this in terms of the average salary for the average worker for the average year. Average household income in the U.S. today is right around 50000 so in today's dollars, we're talking about a jar of perfume, of oil, of ointment, worth $50,000. I hope no one in this room has ever bought a bottle of perfume for $50,000. And if you did, I hope it's nard, because that's funny that it's pure nard. If you do some reading around, you find out that nard is an herb that comes from northern India in the hills of the Himalayas. So you can imagine this would be expensive. This would be hard to get. You'd have to climb to get it. You'd have to travel to get it. And hence, it's desirable. It's powerfully fragrant. In Matthew's account of telling the same story, he says, when she broke this open and it spilled, the fragrance filled the whole house. This alabaster jar of pure nard would likely have been inherited. This wasn't owned by average people, even though we can imagine perhaps somebody has something in their house worth $50,000. Someone has a very nice car, it's worth 
Forget that. In these days, no one really had this except maybe royalty. We're not sure how she got it. Perhaps she had rich relatives. Even among the rich, though, it was used for only one and or two things. It was either used for a girl's wedding or for her burial. That's it. Jews didn't embalm. They, they used fragrances and, and wrappings to hold down the decay and the stench of the dead body. And it was important to them that a burial be done well, be done right. A burial for, for Jews, especially in these days. Well, it was a, either an opportunity for honor or dishonor. He wanted an honorable, honorable burial. You can imagine that this would have been then her single greatest earthly possession, monetarily speaking and otherwise. It would represent honor. It would mean an, an honorable burial to come. And she gives it up. She gives up her future. She gives up her inheritance. She gives up her security. Presumably she could have sold this off if she'd ever gotten into financial trouble. She gives up her all. She didn't just use a bit of this nard on Jesus or even half of it in saving the rest for later, but she poured all of it out. The only time you would use it all at once like this would be in a burial. And she didn't pour it all out neatly, carefully, or something like that. But did you notice she broke the container? This isn't because it slipped. It isn't because she couldn't open the cap. It isn't because somehow it was totally sealed without a hole to get it out. No, she broke the container because this is it. This is one purpose. It's like cracking an egg to get the contents out. You're going to throw away the egg. You're, you're not going to pick up whatever eggs or whatever yolk, whatever white you, you didn't use, and then somehow carefully place it back into a still usable uh, eggshell? No. No. She, you see, she's, she's just breaking it open. Reckless abandonment, total commitment, holding none back. How would you respond if you were there, some were there and protesting. We're just told some by Mark. Other accounts say the disciples. Verse 4 to 5, they, they said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. How would you have reacted? Honestly, think about it. Imagine someone wasting 50 grand. First, imagine wasting 50 grand on perfume, but imagine that perfume then being wasted on someone just poured out. I mean, you only need a little bit, little dabble, do you? Don't overdo it on the cologne, guys. You can imagine. At Passover, it was 
It's commonplace to give some alms, maybe extra alms. You'd look out for the poor more at Passover than you would at other times of the year. We're going to save some alms-giving money here by cashing that in, using that to give to the poor. They said to themselves, is the way the ESV puts it, that may sound like these were private thoughts or unspoken objections that we just know about, but, but no, this was spoken, and it was spoken quite passionately. Literally, it, it's, they were saying to each other, and they were saying it indignantly. They were indignant. They scolded her, verse 5 says. It's a strong word. As one New Testament scholar put it, that word behind scolded means to snort or roar. It's a word used for horses. They neighed at her. They were foaming at the mouth. They were pulling out their, their hair. You've got to be kidding me, woman. That kind of thing. Well, we should let Jesus interpret this for us. You've got her extravagance. You've got their conservatism and care for the poor. Who's right? Well, Jesus praises her. In verse 6, Jesus said, leave her alone. He rebukes them and praises her. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Literally, it's she has done a good work, a good deed. Well, we think of good deeds probably most in terms of what we do for others, what we do to others. We think of it horizontally. And for the most part, that's how it's often used. But Jesus uses that same language for this act of worship. She has done her good deed. She's done the greatest good deed. The greatest commandment. Well, there's a second greatest commandment. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Especially if they're poor. Especially if they're in need. Especially if you can help. But that's the second greatest commandment. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. With all of your soul. With all of your mind. With all of your strength. And with all of your stuff. With the totality of your being. Jesus says in verse 7, You always have the poor with you. Whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. Now Jesus isn't dismissing care for the poor. He's not saying it's hopeless. You might as well give up. There's always going to be poor people, so... Why don't you just give it to me? No. Jesus is actually implying here in this verse that there will always be poor people which will need attention. And so whenever we want, whenever we can, we should do good for them. The poor, according to the Bible, should get our attention. But Jesus alone should get our praise. There's a difference. The second greatest commandment is important. It's the second greatest commandment. But it's not the greatest. There's one greater still. Love the Lord your God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love him with all of your stuff. This woman had Jesus in the flesh at dinner. With her, with him before her very eyes. He was with them. 
and he wouldn't be with them forever. He wouldn't be with them even much longer. You will not always have me. He said something very similar even back in Mark chapter 2. Why do his disciples not fast? Well, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they can't fast. No one fasts for a wedding reception. It's party time. The bridegroom is here. They can't fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. This woman was right to do what she did because she had Jesus in the flesh before her very eyes. And he wouldn't be there much longer. You can't help but also think of the Mary and Martha story in Luke 10. Remember those two sisters who had Jesus over to their home. And Martha was in the kitchen making food for dinner and complaining to Jesus that Mary was of no good. She was simply sitting at Jesus' feet, letting Martha do all the work. But Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, meaning that she was learning, she was listening, she was beholding, she was receiving, she was loving, she was communing. And Jesus responded to Martha's complaints by explaining that Mary had chosen the right thing. She had chosen the better thing. Martha was rebuked, not Mary. It isn't wrong to cook a meal for guests. It's a good thing. It's not wrong to want to care that it's good. It's not wrong to work hard or long in the kitchen. It's not even wrong to ask a sibling, can you give me a little help? But it's totally different when we got Jesus over. When Jesus is in the living room, it's totally different than your average hospitality 101 expectation. He's there. Martha, though she was serving, Mary was adoring. By the way, in Mark 14, it doesn't say who this woman was. It just says some woman. John's account tells us who it was. It's the same Mary. It's the same Mary. John tells us Martha was serving, and Mary came in with this perfume and poured it all out and wiped his feet with her hair. That same Mary who sat at Jesus' feet was now gushing in her love for him. After all, back in John chapter 12, Jesus had just raised her brother from the dead. No surprise, she'd be thankful. Perhaps she knew the time was short. Regardless, she probably heard some of his teaching probably heard something about what he said, that those who follow him must lose their lives in order to save their lives, that those who follow him must take up cross and follow him. If necessary, they must lose mother and father to have him. And so she did what she could, Jesus says. Literally, it's what she had, she did, or she has done. What she had, she has done. That's bad English. What she had, she has done. This is a verb. This is a thing. What is it? So, oh, they translate it differently. But, but you can see what's going on. What she had, she had done. She gave. It reminds us of the woman, the widow, just back a couple chapters in Mark. She gave what she had. 
She happened to have only two copper coins, but she gave what she had. And now here's another woman. She gave what she had. One had two copper coins. Another had $50,000 of perfume. But neither gave up what they had in order to buy a seat in heaven or to buy love from the Savior. They both gave it freely and in praise. Especially in Mary's case, it was an unparalleled expression of her affection and thankfulness and worship. She was representing to Jesus and those around her what Christ is worth to her. And he's worth all. He's worth everything. You say, is he worth $50,000? He's worth infinitely more. She was representing that worth. She was giving her worship. And she was anointing him. Perhaps like a king or a priest would be anointed in the Old Testament for their, their role, their ministry, their work. Perhaps she had come to learn that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and she was anointing him for what was to come. It was good. It was right. It was beautiful because of who he is. It only makes sense if he's the one, if this is God in the flesh. It was good and right and beautiful what she did because of the fact that he was there before her very eyes and because of the fact that he was going away. Everyone else in the room was thinking more practically, more pragmatically. Have you ever wondered how much practical thinking gets in the way of our worship? How much practical thinking gets in the way of our financial decisions? Now, God isn't calling all of us to give up $50,000 right now. We'll take it if you want to give it this Sunday. That's fine. But it was freely done, and that was essential to the beauty of it. But wouldn't it be good and right and beautiful if there was more reckless abandonment in our faith in Jesus, in, in more reckless abandonment in our love expressed for Jesus. It may not mean anything financial for you this morning. What if one application was simply growing in our thoughtfulness, in passion, in communion with the Savior in our corporate worship together so that we're not just singing truth, but we're moved by truth. And it's affecting our vocal cords. We're getting louder even if we're off key. And it's not just affecting our voices, but it's affecting our bodies because we can't help but figure out ways of expressing his laud, his exaltation, his worth, our lowliness, our need, his goodness to us. David once danced naked before the ark of the Lord as it ascended into Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 6. God isn't calling any of you to do that today. <laughs> or ever. Ever. But wouldn't it be wonderful to love Jesus so much that we at least have some appreciation, some understanding for David dancing naked in exuberant joy for God's saving, redemptive purposes and the fulfillment of his promises? 
Wouldn't it be glorious and wonderful if we had a glimmer of what this woman had in our thankfulness and love for Jesus? It was good and right and beautiful because of what he was about to do. Because of what he was about to do. We don't know all of this woman's thoughts or motivations for her act, but we do know how Jesus interpreted it and applied it, probably in a way that Mary never intended, but here it is. Verse 8, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. The burial perfume would indeed actually be used for someone soon to be buried. The hurried nature of Jesus' death and burial meant that he got no oil or perfume on his dead body. He was wrapped and he was put in a cold tomb. And remember, the ladies were supposed to come back on Sunday morning with oil, ointment perfume for this very purpose. Of course, when they get there, they realize they don't need it. He's risen. He's alive. His body is not corrupting or stinking. But he'd already been prepared symbolically for a burial that was to come in just a couple of days. And that death was no ordinary death, no accidental death, no unfortunate thing. Jesus did not die the death of a poor victim, but get a happy ending when it was all said and done. No, he gave his life as a ransom for many. He said, no one takes my life. I lay it down of my own volition. I lay my life down for my sheep. He came not to be served, but to serve. This woman came and she poured out all that she had in love for the Savior. Little did she know that he would, in just some days, pour out his life completely for sin and for sinners. That he would give his all for all of us, for all who would ever trust and follow him that he might bring us to God and reconcile us to the God we've rebelled against. This is good news. This is the gospel. And verse 9 says, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This doesn't mean that there's no gospel presentation unless you mention this woman and her oil and anointing. That's not what it's saying. It's talking about the gospel good news, which is both a a shorthand message, which we can relay in paraphrases and scripture quotations, probably off the top of our head when we're in a conversation with someone who doesn't believe it yet. But the gospel is also these accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These accounts have this woman and we are remembering her even today as we look at this passage every time you've read this in the past you fulfilled the prophecy that Jesus gave here that in the future the gospel will spread to all the nations and they will remember her and what she did you can come to him 
because of this woman, because of the gospel, the good news that has been proclaimed. Receive it and cling to the Savior in faith and love. Anyone can come. Lepers can come. Unnamed women of the first century, not regarded very highly, perhaps most likely unmarried. A Mary can come. A Simon, the leper, can come. The outcast, the less important than others, can come. This is Christianity. This is what Jesus is all about. Now, thirdly, we see Judas and his deliberate betrayal. Judas and his deliberate betrayal. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, before we go any further, I need to say something about the chronology here because it helps us understand what Mark is up to. If we try to piece together the chronology of what's happening here in Mark 14 compared with the other accounts, we'd see in Mark 14, 1, now this happened two days before the Passover. But the story of the woman who anoints Jesus in John 12, that's introduced as it happened six days before the Passover. Is that a mistake? A conflict? No, no, no. Mark has taken this story from four days before and inserted it here for a literary purpose. Remember, he does that thing, literary sandwiches, where he takes one story, then puts it on pause, introduces another story, and then comes back to the first to finish it. And what he's doing is showing something about the whole. He's contrasting two different themes. He's showing us what to look at. You always look at the meat of a sandwich, not just the bun or the bread. And so here's the sandwich. You've got Jewish leaders looking for an opportunity to kill him. But they're frustrated. But then verse 10 and following, you've got Judas. He's their missing piece to the puzzle plot. You've got betrayal and conspiracy. But in between verses 3 through 9, you've got that very different scene at the home of Simon where Mary shows extravagant adoration for Jesus. That's the meat of this sandwich. I think Mark puts it here as well, the story of the woman, next to Judas's betrayal and the plot of the religious leaders because he's wanting to make the starkest of contrast between this woman's devotion and the scheming scribes bent on his destruction. He wants to contrast her love for Jesus and Judas's treachery. She's a brilliant diamond standing out against the black cloth of conspiracy and betrayal around her. There's the unparalleled sacrifice she showed for Christ in stark contrast to Judas's greed. She gives up all for Jesus. Judas gives up Jesus for not much. 30 pieces of silver couple of months' worth of income. And John 12 tells us Judas's motive being greed. John tells us Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, 
Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? John pins it solely on Judas. It had to be true. It was both everyone in the room and maybe even more Judas. So Judas said this. And then John tells us he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief in having charge of the money bag. He was the treasurer. He used to help himself to what was put into it. He used to pinch, pilfer. So greed was clearly the primary motivation for Judas's betrayal of his master. And Jesus being okay with this woman's foolish waste of $50,000 was apparently the final straw for Judas. And that's why it goes from one scene to the other, not because they happened in sequence, but because because this must have been the final straw. After that, he sought an opportunity to betray him. He initiated. He wasn't tricked into it. He wasn't talked into it. He wasn't pressured. He initiated it, and he went seeking a reward. The one thing we know about Judas is that he loved money more than Christ. He even betrayed him and sold him out and turned him in and identified him later in the garden with a kiss. Now look down at verse 17 to 21 as we wrap this up. We'll look at verses 12 and following uh, at our Lord's Supper service toward the end of the month. We'll come back to those verses there. Verses 12 to 16 are really just a setup For what we see in verses 17 to 21, which is that famous Last Supper, and there Jesus tells of the coming betrayal, tells of one who would betray Jesus. So verse 17 to 21, it says, When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, One of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. J.C. Ryle comments on this far better than I could. J.C. Ryle, 150 years ago, says, If ever there was a man who at one time looked like a true disciple of Christ and bade fair to reach heaven, that man was Judas. He was chosen by the Lord Jesus himself to be an apostle. He was privileged to be a companion of the Messiah and an eyewitness of his mighty works throughout his earthly ministry. He was an associate of Peter, James, and John. He was sent forth to preach the kingdom of God and to work miracles in Christ's name. He was regarded by all the 11 apostles as one of themselves. He was so like his fellow disciples that they did not suspect him of being a traitor. And yet this very man turns out at last a false-hearted child of the devil. He departs entirely from the faith, assists our Lord's deadliest enemies, and leaves the world with a worse reputation than anyone since the days of Cain. 
Never was there such a fall, such an apostasy, such a miserable end to a fair beginning, such a total eclipse of a soul. And how can this amazing conduct of Judas be accounted for? There's only one answer to that question, the love of money. Didn't Jesus teach early on in his ministry about four different soils? One of those soils will receive the word with joy, and yet the desire for riches and the deceitfulness of possessions and riches will lead him astray. It will choke out the word, and it will prove unfruitful. That third soil has Judas written all over it. Are you afraid of riches? Riches are good. God gives us everything we have. He gives it freely for us to freely enjoy it. 1 Timothy 6 tells us about that. But it also gives warning about those who desire to be rich, those who seek riches. And they are very stern warnings. Perhaps this afternoon, perhaps at your lunch table today, you'd read 1 Timothy 6 as a family or with some friends. Remind yourself of Paul's warning to Timothy there about rich, the rich among them, and the dangers that are inherent in riches? When's the last time you prayed Proverbs 30, verse 8? Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches. Don't give me poverty so I'm tempted to steal, and don't give me riches so I'm tempted to forget you. When's the last time you had the guts to pray, neither poverty nor riches, instead of, Lord, just one more big thing? Just one more? Have you given enough to Jesus? Have you sacrificed enough? Have you given your all? You most certainly have not. Neither have I, but he gave his all for us and for our sin. He was a sacrifice. His life was poured out on our behalf. So take a look at the treacherous betrayal of Judas, betraying his master for 30 pieces of silver and turning him in with a kiss. Know that he grieved but didn't repent. There's grief in that kind of betrayal. We're grieved over our sin, and yet we also realize that just like this story that's unfolding here in Mark, God's on his throne. It's all according to plan. It's in his hand. He is orchestrating things. Nothing will threaten it. Remember Psalm 2. Remember Acts 2 and Acts 4. Remember the most heinous sin ever committed, the crucifixion of the Son of God, the Christ, is our salvation, our joy, our, the symbol of our faith. Remember that Jesus said certain things would happen, and they did. Remember he said he'll come again, and he will. And in light of all that, now and forever, let us praise him. Let us praise him. Let us not leave this place today focused so much on what we should give up or what we should give or what stuff is right to keep and what we should get rid of. Let us instead focus on him.
That was the woman's focus. It wasn't on her oil, her perfume. It was on Jesus. He's glorious. May it be true of us what it says in Job 22, that we can lay our gold in the dust and let the Almighty be our gold and our precious silver. Let's pray for his help. Oh, Lord, you tell us to taste and see that you're good. You tell us that in your presence is the fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Satisfy us today with your loving kindness that we might sing for joy and be glad all our days. Satisfy us with your love that we might be more extravagant in our love for you, our worship to you, and our sacrifices for you. And even more that we would speak boldly for you. That the gospel would be proclaimed in all the nations. That more and more would be like this woman who not only see Christ as the Christ, as the answer, and as the lovely one, but express that love in extravagant and glorious ways. We need your help to know how great your love is. We need your help, Lord, to love you back with all heart and soul and mind and strength. Help us now as we sing to sing in love about your love and thankfulness for it in true communion with you. Help us to sing with joy and faith and awe. Help us to sing loudly thoughtfully and passionately and for your glory. Amen.